Hello, and welcome to our second ever episode of Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics in conversation with each other. Today, we're going to be talking about Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan's 1970s run on Tomb of Dracula, in conversation with Scott Snyder and Raphael Albuquerque's 2010 series, uh, American Vampire. Um, we're also going to have a review of the academic text Gothica by Victoria Nelson. Without further ado, let's get started. So before we truly get going on our very spooky podcast today, um, we would just like to thank St. Jerome's University and the Games Institute at the University of Waterloo for their use of their equipment, um, without which we wouldn't be here making this fabulous podcast today. So let's introduce our usual cohort of panelists. Um, first, we're going to have representing, as it were, Tomb of Dracula, we have... I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I teach here at St. Jerome's University. And with him, we have... Uh, I'm Dr. Michael Hancock, and I teach at the University of Waterloo. And you're going to be representing American Vampire. Um, and I am, I'm going to be our moderator for today. I'm Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. So let's get started. I'm going to have Andrew introduce us to Tomb of Dracula. Thank you. Uh, Tomb of Dracula was a Marvel Comics series, somewhat improbably, that ran for 70 issues from 1972 to 1979. Uh, and has enjoyed a cult, pun intended, following ever since. We'll be covering Marv Wolfman's first arc on the series. Uh, the series was developed as a throwback to the then-lost tradition of horror comics. This was a once-thriving genre in North American comics that had been very specifically targeted by the comics code in the 1950s, effectively erasing it. Nearly two decades later, Tomb of Dracula sought to pick up on that lost momentum and reignite the comics horror genre. Here within the new backdrop of the 1970s, and somehow within the specific context of the Marvel Universe. Uh, this is no easy task, and by all accounts should have failed. Uh, and indeed, the series started out very shaky with different creative teams and different visions, uh, but eventually found its footing by issue number seven, when writer Marv Wolfman paired with existing artist Gene Colan. Wolfman took Dracula from a cheesy Silver Age comics villain, back to his more enigmatic and somewhat sympathetic roots from Stoker's original work. The story centers on Dracula as a sort of backdoor protagonist or anti-hero, while the more traditional heroic shoes are filled by a crew of dynamic vampire hunters, featuring among others Rachel Van Helsing, the granddaughter of the legendary vampire hunter from Stoker's novel, Frank Drake, a descendant of Dracula himself, uh, and Blade, the vampire hunter made famous by Wesley Snipes in a trilogy of films that began in 1998. Michael, introduce us to American Vampire. Uh, we're going to be looking at the first volume of American Vampire by Raphael Albuquerque and Scott Snyder. Uh, Snyder or Albuquerque, which I will be pronouncing in various ways throughout the podcast, <laughs> so apologies to him, uh, started work in advertising and pushed a creator-owned graphic novel, Rumble in La Rambla, in his uh, native area of Brazil, and it was later published as Crime Land under, the Im under Image. He became the regular penciler for the DC comic Blue Beetle in 2009 and penned a miniseries Nomad for Marvel. In 2010, he co-created American Vampire with Scott Snyder, who uh, attributes his own influence to 
well, our third writer of this series, Stephen King. Snyder came into prominence in prose writing with his 2006 short story collection, Voodoo Heart, where two short stories were selected for, by Stephen King for the 2007 Best American Short Stories Anthology. He then went on to do some other comic writing with the original Human Torch, Iron Man Noir, and began American Vampire in 2010. He is particularly notable because in 2011, he became the lead writer for Batman and has become very influential in the current direction of DC in general, being one of the lead creative voices behind the Metal series and currently writing the Justice League. American Vampire received the 2011 Eisner and Harvey Awards for Best New Series and was pretty well regarded in its time. Uh, the book is about a is divided into two parts. Every issue starts in the 1920s with the life of Pearl, which quickly becomes an unlife as she is drawn into an ongoing war of sorts between European vampires and the new American vampire, Skinner Sweets. Uh, the second half of the story, penned by Stephen King, looks at uh, Sweets' vampire origins as he battles against the same earlier iteration of the European vampires and against uh, sheriff figure James Book and his own coterie of vampire, well, they become vampire hunters in essence. So let's get into our discussion. We've got lots and lots of stuff that we can talk about and compare with these two texts. Um, but I first thought it might be important for us to start with a bit more background sort of on the horror genre within comics and how Tomb of Dracula sort of came into existence um, in the context of a revision of the 1954 Comics Code. And I know Andrew knows a great deal about this. So, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what things were banned in comics with the 1954 Code? You know, how is Tomb of Dracula, you know, enabled by the revision of the Code? What's sort of the legacy of horror in comics? Uh, I think horror comics are sort of where, where comics got into trouble uh, with the parent-teacher associations of the world. Uh, that was the part that was indefensible, uh, and that created a lot of the props. Uh, specifically, EC comics in the 1950s were wildly popular, uh, and they had a lot of depiction of like grotesque horror in them. As a result of that, there were a series of Senate subcommittee hearings in which comics had to essentially defend themselves to Congress, uh, which is baffling. Uh, they were doing pretty good uh, until some of the publishers of DC Comics decided to draw a hard line uh, and they took a stand and they said they wouldn't be censored uh, and this resulted in the Comics Code Authority coming into place which um, was a self-censorship bureau technically. It was paid for by the comics publishers um, but they really went after EC Comics. Like, like, like very specifically you can't have werewolfism, you can't have the word crime in your title with a certain level of emphasis. Uh, it, it, was, it was pretty clear to everyone. So this genre basically got annihilated as a consequence of this. Uh, and for the longest time, the comics code, like you couldn't do horror in it. You couldn't do much in it. Uh, so by about 1972, we saw the comics code starting to slacken a little bit. Uh, and Marvel Comics recognized an opportunity there. The, this was a wildly popular genre that they, they really wanted to bring back somehow. Uh, the problem was trying to do that under the banner of you know existing Marvel continuity, uh, which I think is where Team Tomb of Dracula becomes a really important piece of comics history. 
I mean, I think it's important or interesting both, well, for us to talk a little bit about why horror was specifically targeted, though. I mean, in, in, in terms of what were people afraid horror would do? Why was horror so specifically harmful to children? And I mean, if we look at the comics code, which I have open here, in terms of specific things it banned, things like all scenes of horror, excessive bloodshed, <laughs> gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism, masochism, all lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. And as you mentioned, it specifically says that you can't have scenes dealing with the walking dead, torture, vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism. Whereas in the 1971 revision, it's also interesting how that's framed. So in this revision to the code, and this is a quote from it, vampires, ghouls, and werewolves, when handled in the classic tradition, such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works written by Edgar Allan Poe, Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle, and other respected authors whose work is read in schools around the world, may be included. So what is it specifically about horror? What is it specifically about vampires, since they were specifically targeted with the original 1954 code? Why was this thought to be specifically threatening? Uh... I think all comics were regarded as threatening because of their popularity. There was also, of course, Frederick Wertham, who was a prominent psychologist, arguing that um, comics were corrupting the youth of America. We started to see some really cool um, public service announcements. That there's one where uh, a kid is literally lured into the forest by other yeah. children, uh, and the kids are reading comics in the forest, and the kid looks at a comic for about five seconds and immediately pulls out a pocket knife and starts stabbing a tree. <laughs> Which sounds a lot like being sort of, you know, recruited to a cult of vampires or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, that, that fundamental idea of just, just corruption. And I think horror comics were, as I said, just, just such an easy target. And it's weird to look at the Comics Code Revision and say it's okay if it's in the model of Stoker. But Stoker was all about sex and violence. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's just... The easiness of the target is about how obvious it was and how easy it was to like bring it into a court and say, look, severed arm. Uh, that made it, I don't know, something that could, could get the people who were petitioning against comics what they wanted. Um, so I think there's a lot of politics involved in this process. I find it really interesting how it compares to other media in that regard. I mean, in a way, the 20th century is a history of people picking on different yeah. depictions of violence in different media that uh, you have the Dungeons and Dragons scare in the 70s and 80s you have video games in the 90s, you have film if you're going earlier but it seems to have maybe affected the trajectory of comics a lot more than other mediums were hit. Yeah. Oh yeah, the, the, the statistics are, are, are pretty clear comics have not recovered from where they were pre-code in the 1950s uh, which is saying something as, as big as comics have been in eras such as like the late 80s and um, early 90s. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very interested the way, I mean, you know, the specific emphasis on, you know, gruesome imagery and excessive imagery and all of these things, you know, as being part of the danger of the comics medium. You know, it's been talked about as a very participatory medium, a medium that encourages you to make imaginative connections between suggestive images mm -hmm. and the way horror plays into a lot of these fears that people had about the medium, which, as modern comic scholars, we see as the positives of the medium. And horror sort of is at an interesting crux there of, you know, being 
danger and you know possibility which i'm hoping we can talk about with some of our texts well i think it's really interesting to take that argument look at like sort of pre-code absence of horror look at tomb of dracula and then look at american vampire Mm. which is as violent as is probably possible to be in a comic how how do you see that continuity playing out? how do you see like where we are now michael in, in american vampire well, why don't we, why don't we, can we go back to that question? Let's, like, because that's a big question. Let's circle back to it <laughs> by being, let's start off with getting into these texts a little bit more. Let's t- start talking about the theme of vampirism in both of these texts and how it's used. And then maybe we can circle back to like that issue of violence, how it relates to that and sort of the transition between that 70s era and this 2010 era. So let's start with Tomb of, Tomb of Dracula because it is our first text chronologically. But how is this theme of vampirism working in this text? Is it basically quite similar to the Bram Stoker one? Is it being revised in some way? How is it kind of being used there? I think what you're seeing is um, a transition. I, I mentioned that the, the text sort of falls into its own. Wolfman comes on board. Wolfman has been public about this. He felt he took him a little while to figure out the character. Uh, and even when you watched, read, like, say, on issue seven, issue eight, you see Dracula going from a like, really conventional Marvel comic supervillain. Just mustache twirling. Nothing, yep. nothing really interesting about him. <laughs> Cape swirling. <laughs> yeah, your weapons are useless on me, you fools. How many times does he say the word fool in the first few issues? There's a ton of that. Uh, and then you start to look a little bit further on in Wolfman's run, and you see Dracula becoming much more sympathetic, more noble, more heroic, more compelling. Uh, and I think that really brings him in line with Stoker's vision, that sort of classic horror take. Uh, which is what makes the horror, in my opinion, good in the first place. The idea that um, uh, Dracula is this evil, demonic monster. But, but when you read some of the better chapters of Stoker's book, uh, like, like he's somebody that, that Mina kind of loves and is clearly a better choice for her in many ways than <laughs> incredibly boring accountant Jonathan Harker. And I think Wolfman's playing with that dynamic as well through the character of um, Frank Drake, uh, who is horribly boring. Uh, in spite of the fact that they tried to make him, you know, the series protagonist. So Frank Drake is one of the vampire hunters in this series. Yes. yes. Oh, for, and for readers who, for listeners who might not know. Yeah, the major shift when Wolfman comes on is that it kind of, it goes from a group of vampire hunters going after Dracula to this is Dracula's story, and yeah, also right, right. these uh, kind of Scooby gang chases him every now and then. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of cool to watch. I mean, is it partly in the legacy then, too, though, of the Universal Horror movies? I mean, Marvel is very indebted to those movies in a lot of ways. In terms of, you know, that idea of the sympathetic monster, you know, the Hulk kind of being a version of Frankenstein's monster who is even more sympathetic than sort of Universal studios horror monsters of their time and even in that terms of having that connected universe you know like dracula meets the wolfman was you know something that they were doing in those movies before marvel had dracula meeting the marvel universe yeah i think this is one of the situations where i would actually give a ton of credit to the 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 visual artistry Mm -hmm. in terms of creating some of that impact like like dracula is not a character you look at and you think i want to be this guy uh the way he's written at least initially um, but the way Colin draws him as just this, this absolute beautiful gothic badass with flapping cape behind yeah. him, that creates this, this really cool allure. Uh, I've talked about this in, in like classes before in terms of the, the paradox of science fiction, which in early science fiction is fear the technology, but the cover of every science fiction book is a beautiful piece of technology uh, that makes you want to read it. So there's this kind of strange impulse between being enticed and repulsed. And, and ultimately, I think that becomes a form of like, like a reflection. 
in Stoker's book, it's about reflection on your own sexual desires, how they're gross, for lack of a better term, um, but also kind of necessary and appealing. Uh, and I think Colin is able to bring that aesthetic very specifically to Dracula. And once Wolfman kind of figures that out uh, and starts to work in tandem with that, that's when, for me, the book becomes really interesting. So you see it as basically indebted to kind of that Victorian tradition in a lot of ways. I, I think Dracula is almost permanently in that tradition. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, well, even in the Universal movies, he sort of I'll, stands apart that way, yeah. I'll push a little against that because I think one of the things... It, this book is obviously very different from your run-of-the-mill uh, Marvel book. Mm-hmm. I think what it really does capture is the way that Marvel of this era has made its villains appear appealing. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Dracula compar- stacks very nicely to many of the interpretations of Doctor Doom. He's got a lot of things. Yeah. For me, like one of the chief fascinations about this book is that it's something Marvel doesn't do very often. It's Let's tell the super. Let's have a book that is the supervillain. Let's have that go on for a long time. What does it mean to tell a story where it's not the hero's story? It's the supervillain's story. Yeah, I mean, and that's interesting too. I mean, if we talk about its connection to the Marvel universe, right? I mean, it sort of was enabled by these. So, Tumor Dracula is enabled by these changes to the code, but also by things that the Marvel universe had done by, as you said, making you know certain villains more sympathetic. Let's shift to, because we talked a lot about Tomb of Dracula, let's shift to American Vampire. Let's talk about how is the vampire metaphor being used there. Get us into a little bit more of sort of the plot and, 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 and the main metaphor of that series, if you don't mind. Michael. Well, I'm going to pull a quote. Uh, this is from a book that is actually on uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, because I think it shows that or at least it implies that this direction has always been a part of the mm-hmm. vampire approach. Yeah, I think we'll have lots of stuff to talk about in terms of uh, trying to connect these This two. is uh, Lewis H. Palmer, Vampires in the New World, and uh, a chapter called Dracula's American, which, as he points out, is the cha- it's on the American character in the original uh, story, but also, quote, uh, Although I will focus primarily on this secondary meaning, I want to point out the first that you could say if you have a chapter called Dracula's American, it could also be interpreted as Dracula is American, that uh, because of the American film industry, it took a central European character invented by an Irish novelist writing in England, and but he is an American figure. That is what brought Dracula to the 20th century in the world. And in that sense, there's always been an aspect of American in Dracula. And what this series, American Vampire, really brings out is, I mean, it's not subtle in any way about this, but it's the idea of how telling American history through the perspective of vampire, that there is this new breed of vampire that represents in various ways throughout the series the whatever it means to be american uh sweets is essentially a psychopath uh who is obsessed with candy uh so consumerism uh our major mediums that we have is that half of the story is a western the other half is the film industry 
and both, again, primarily American genres and tropes. The series as a whole, if we go beyond this volume, it keeps following that American history. The next immediate one is set in the 30s with Las Vegas. It goes all the way up to the 70s and the moon landing, I believe. And Vampire becomes this consumption and this uh, constant greed, I guess, is the best way for the but also the idea of exceptionalism. The American vampire is different than the European vampire because Americans are different. We are new and mm -hmm. we are incredible is the point that this like reinforces over and over. Well, to what extent then do you see the series as kind of you know glorifying American identity and to what sense critical of it? Uh, critical in the sense that, again, Sweets is a psychopath. <laughs> so you can't go too far with like... But he is also... Ooh, this psychopath that we're supposed to find, honestly, don't find Sweets that appealing as a character, but there is this very clear sense that we're supposed to regard him, similar to Dracula, as this character that is simultaneously repulsive and attractive. Uh, that's the immediate response that uh, our protagonist uh, uh, has to him. So it's supposed to be something that we reject, but also oh, it's kind of cool, which is what horror is frequently portrayed as. I, I can't help mentioning that the character's appearance, as we were discussing before the pod, is quite directly modeled <laughs> after the appearance of Kid Rock, which dates the series somewhat. But um... I think if you have the mental soundtrack of going to be a cowboy <laughs> going while you read every one of his scenes, then you'll be in the mood the book's trying to do. So I'm wondering, we've sort of touched on it a little bit, but if we could go a little bit deeper on sort of the nature of horror in these comics and what we mean by the horror genre and how we see that reflected in these comics through these vampires, through the style of the comics in general, through the plots. And let's start with Tomb of Dracula. How do we know that this is a horror comic as opposed to a superhero comic? It is ostensibly taking place within a superhero universe as well, but what makes this a horror comic? Well, I think in comparison to American Vampire, like, this is still within the new comics code, so we can't just have you know severed arms yeah. everywhere. Uh, the violence still has to be pretty restrained, so it, it doesn't have that that like um, um, grotesque aspect that we associate with horror. Um, what it does have that I think is very much a reinterpretation of the EC comics mentality is this emphasis on um, almost paranoia: the idea that evil is real, it is everywhere, and it's plotting to get you. And it really wants you to feel comfortable because that's how it gets you. And I think Tomb of Dracula does a really good job of sort of reconstructing that that atmosphere of paranoia. Dracula's out there. He's lurking. You let your guard down for a second and he's got you kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's, I guess the easiest way to describe it would be atmospheric. Uh, and again, I would point to the visual art, not just to, to Colin, um, but the team of colorists, uh, which is kind of revolving uh, onto Dracula. If you look at the way that this thing is, is colored, it, it's beautiful, garish sometimes colors all over the place uh, in contrast to what you might expect, which would be, you know, blacks and grays and a muted color palette. Uh, so it's, again, creating this kind of um, um, visceral and dynamic atmosphere through which this, this paranoia plays out. Uh, the idea of the unseen uh, and, and, again, it, its intent, uh, its desire to get you. I think that's what really makes Tomb of Dracula effective as a horror comic from my perspective. Do you see there being kind of a gothic style to 
well, I mean, I know you said it and just said it's not just Colin, but I mean, starting with Colin's kind of style. Colin's got a very kind of like a sweeping, atmospheric style, loves drawing wind. Yes, I can. Kind of <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think there are places where it tries to contemporize uh, and, you know, weave it into a more modern world. Uh, but there are other times where like specific choices of like um, what your model of car they're driving uh, or, you know, what the inn that they're staying at has for its sort of architectural basis. Um, that reveals the, the influence of the Gothic. And Colin can do that very well. Uh, I mean, if you looked at the average page of this text, you might think this was set uh, in early 1900s. Uh, and then others, as said, he tries to contemporize it a little bit. And usually that is a sign uh, in Marvel that they just don't know what Europe, places in Europe look like. <laughs> yes. But here it actually works. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, give, it, give our like, listeners sort of an idea of what you mean by that evil lurking everywhere. Because I can think of so many examples from, you know, and someone will just be walking down the street and suddenly rats and then Dracula. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, give, give us an, an idea of what that looks like. I mean, if I could just yeah. really quickly jump in there. I love that. I love the particular use in the first issue we look at of Dracula using rats to kind of hairy foe or pray to him because he does the exact same thing in this story with children. Yeah, we have an mm-hmm. evil yeah. army of children the that recruits yes, to. which is a great start for this run. Yeah. Um, in terms of the, the, the paranoia atmosphere thing, um, it's always he establishes the character's life first, these, these yes. nothing characters who are about to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're doing something so casual and relatable. Yeah. Maybe they're going shopping for shoes. They're <laughs> just walking home from the pub. And a nice stranger says hello and walks them into a shadow and they're dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think it really does a good job of, again, making those characters um, identifiable to us, giving them names, giving them at least some form of desire or motivation, uh, and showing a mundane world that just like the snap of a thumb gets immediately undermined uh, and then throws us back into this. Um, I would say it's like it's a really fast-paced overall narrative and, and well-sustained in terms of this hunt for Dracula. And I think that's uh, the quick establishment of side characters. Uh that's something that happens a lot in the era with Claremont, right? Uh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the relationship between Claremont and Wolfman is really interesting in terms of um, them just mutually borrowing from each other like crazy uh, and working with each other. I mean, I know Claremont is going to be writing Blade, who makes his first appearance in these issues. Claremont is going to be writing the character very soon. Yeah, and Wolfman will go over to DC to write Teen Titans, which is basically X-Men. Mm-hmm. And of course, when we say very soon, we mean within the context of as though we were existing in the 1970s. Right yes. Now. <laughs> yes, exactly. And we mean Chris Claremont, longtime writer of X-Men, for those who might be less heavily initiated into comics <laughs> than others of us. Less nerdy. Um, but, so what about American Vampire? You know, is it, would you agree that it is a horror comic in a traditional sense? Is it sort of in pushing the... those boundaries? What makes it a horror comic? Well, uh... There's a horror film, primarily film scholar, uh, Noel Carroll, who frames horror as, I think it's an external threat that individuals slowly become aware of and martial forces to destroy. And in that sense, it is a very classic horror setup that uh, we have our uh, female character learn about the horror and well basically what we have are two stories that start off in different genres and then the vampire comes into it and that's basically the approach for the series that you take this already existing trope in 
American history and stories, and let's put a vampire in the middle of that. I think the first half does actually really well in uh, portraying the existing film system where the at the time in the 1920s, the studio was absolutely in charge of the lives of its stars and to transfer that into the way vampires take charge of humans. Uh, that works really well, at least the studio conceptually. studio system is vampiric. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not, again, not subtle, not in any way subtle, <laughs> but it, it, as a metaphor, it works. Um, I think the other side of it where you just replace the uh, cowboy outlaw with a vampire it doesn't play quite as neatly, but there's definitely a horror element of they have to go into Sweet's cave and find him. I mean, would you say that that relates to the, you know, thing Andrew was saying, you know, I mean, the paranoia of the world, you know, that vampires have sort of infiltrated everything and people are, you know, you could just be, because we do have one of those scenes, right, yeah. where, mm-hmm. you know, the main female protagonist is at a party, she like goes into the room and, you know, it could be kind of a casting couch situation, but it turns out that they were vampires. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There is kind of that paranoia played up in the second half as well, although Sweets is just one person, so it mm-hmm. gets a little... So the second half would be the backup stories written by yeah. Stephen King, right? and it's, it, it's a bit odd to be like, oh, Stephen King is the weak link of this series, yeah. <laughs> but uh, as he admits, this is his first comic book attempt proper, and mm-hmm. uh, there are some pacing issues and so forth at times. little bit about if you guys are ready to talk about violence and these comics i mean violence was one of the sort of central concerns with the regulations of the, with the comics codes regulations of horror so how is violence depicted in these comics and they are a very different style from very different eras so i'm hoping there'll be some interesting things to compare here so we'll start again with tomb of dracula what did you feel about the depiction of violence in these comics, Andrew? Do you find it similar to superhero comics from the same era? Is it different? Is it influenced by the horror tradition? Yeah, I think it's of a certain um, subgenre of the horror tradition, I guess. Uh, so I said, you sometimes get like the, the grotesque horror that revels in violence, and then you get the sort of sanitized, like sexy horror. It's almost like okay. the distinction between crime thrillers and like Agatha Christie cozy mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, which are kind of you know, bloodless. Dracula as this like gentleman vampire, uh, he almost has to be kind of sanitized, I guess, and not horribly violent. The violence is largely off screen. Now, the consequences of it are not really there. Trauma is kind of not a thing. Uh, and you have characters like, you know, I'm, I'm Rachel and Drake who are just running into violence. Let's get that guy kind of thing. And characters like Blade who love violence and they're excited to go into it. Um, so I think it's, it's under-considered, I guess, would be the easiest way to approach it. But as I said, maybe to uh, a certain type of consistency uh, with, with the kind of vampire that we're depicting here. I'd also say, though, that... I mean, we'll get into the comparison in a second, but this also has one of the most horrific violent scenes. Uh, issue 11, The Voodoo Man, mm. is uh, to set up the premise really quickly. Uh, it is Dracula wandering into another horror story, basically, <laughs> uh, where uh, 
The idea is that there's this man in an iron lung who is sending a gang out to distribute, uh, to tell the people he feels are responsible for putting him there, and he is using his knowledge of voodoo, which, uh, problems. <laughs> but he is using that uh, in order to take out the people he feels are responsible for his injury. That's a very classic EC horror era type of story. Yeah. Uh, Dracula wanders in and turns him into... He doesn't really have much motivation for tormenting this specific guy. Uh, he, he does have a grudge against the gang he is using, but with this specific guy, he hypnotizes the leader of the gang to turn him into a vampire, and there's this scene where he is trapped in this iron lung as a vampire, the as the up. sun comes up. And it's like, that is a level of suffering and pain that I don't think anything else we looked at really equals. That's true. There's some good sort of suggestive psychological violence throughout Tomb of Dracula. Yeah, I just want to read some of the text from this page that, that you're referencing <laughs> because I think it will give you more of an idea of what this comic feels like. So this is just the last, this is taking place in the last two panels of issue number 11 of Tomb of Dracula. So as for Jason Faust, so this is the guy in the Iron Lung, he too dies, but his is the death of a vampire, a death which means he will live again as one of the undead. But he is reborn, twice plagued, for he thirsts the thirst of a vampire, yet he cannot leave the iron shell which gives him life. And as he writhes in painful hunger, he watches the dawn rise and sunlight fill his empty manse, sunlight which will burn the undead horror from his frail body, as he waits, for there is nothing else to do but to wait and to die. There's some wonderful purple prose in Dracula. <laughs> and it's very text-heavy, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the text is part oh, yeah. of the atmosphere of the comic, right? The horror atmosphere of the comic. Yeah, it slows down the pace, too, and again, mm -hmm. creates that atmospheric effect. I mean, who typically is the victim of violence in this comic? I mean, is it just everybody? Are certain people targeted more than others? I, it does seem like people who have vices uh, are Although, more commonly thrown into Dracula violence. does have a tendency, oh, there's another random woman. That's... Yes. Yeah, yeah, there's no question. He even makes reference to that when he's trying to pretend he's not a vampire mm -hmm. uh, on the, the boat scene where he's talking about how you shouldn't be afraid of me kind of thing. It's interesting that we've got two different versions of him, like instances where he is pretending not to be a vampire in that instance. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful, uh, like when he is found uh, when he is rescued by that couple and he gives his own version of what he was doing that night, uh, juxtaposed with the images of him, you know, going out and be doing vampire things. Yeah. So the denial of his own self. Yeah, I think that's a major theme in one of the um, series that was coming out at the same time. Uh, I forget its name, but it was the same character and it was exploring his humanity and his relationship to humanity a little bit more. Mm. Uh, and even during Wolfman's run, they specifically reference it. Um, the, the, you get an editor's note that Dracula has come to terms with being a vampire and no longer wants to destroy himself uh, for oh, you know, yeah. that sense of mourning for his lost mm. humanity. Uh, although it does come up. And I also really like, too, that um, when Wolfman engages with the idea of Dracula being disgusted by human beings for <laughs> rational reasons. Oh, he, the, he's at the boxing match. The boxing match is my favorite Beautiful. part of this whole. Even and though again, it has nothing to do with the issue at hand, it could no. be cut out. <laughs> it is wonderful. He, he just goes to a boxing match and he's like, well, they're fighting for no reason. This is ridiculous. Yep. 
He's and he uses that as yeah, yeah, part of his disgust for humanity. I mean, yeah, I mean, just getting back to that, you know, who the violence is perpetrated against thing. I mean, there's a scene that I remember where he stops a man from possibly sexually assaulting a woman in the alley only to take her into the alley and bite her with his vampire bite. So, I mean, that's sort of the nature of his anti-heroism a little bit. He's sympathetic. He attacks certain people who are bad people, but his goal is also to turn everybody into his vampire slave army. So. Yep. But let's let's turn to American Vampire and, and the, the violence in it, which is this is a very violent well, comic. Yeah, we could start with the question of who is the violence against, yes. mm-hmm. because especially again in the second cowboy themed story, there's a lot of women who are killed and killed almost with zero character established to them. And not just by sweets. Uh, we have a female character who's introduced to get married, and like three panels later, she has died in childbirth. Uh, we have sweets poisoning a fiance for no real reason, just, you know. And our only other female character there is a 19 year old who seduces her uh, godfather, so it's some questionable gender stuff in general. And because she wants his baby. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, I've got the... It is my fertile time. It's yep. a dialogue. And again, Stephen King. And I know almost it, it's one of maybe the second page of the comic or even the third panel is, you know, that view of the, you know, naked, abused yes. women, like, stacked in the truck yep. and getting dumped into the pit of yes. other women. Yeah, and uh, our lead's body is yes. used in that way. Uh there's also an emphasis of whiteness in this comic. I mean, that's traditionally a vampire thing. They are very pale, but it does reinforce the fact that this is a comic of entirely white characters, excluding, I think, like two people of Mexican origin that are part of the second part story where they're basically fodder. I found it very strange that there wasn't any presence of Native American characters in this comic. It's Um, it happens elsewhere in the series. It's not great because every one of the things the series does is every time you have a new group or ethnicity, what kind of vampires do they make? Well, I mean, it just, I mean, in terms of getting back to that question we asked way back about, you know, is this critical or celebratory of American identity to not include Native American characters and not make that part of the critique? I mean, that's an odd, it seemed like an odd choice to me. I mean, especially if you're going to be using the cowboy story as one of your archetypes. And I mean, you know, the theme of, you know, race genocide that's built into kind of like the And Europeans using other people for fodder. Yeah. So it's just was an interesting absence, I thought. I mean, getting back to that, you know, violence, violence in women kind of question. I mean, I wonder if it's useful to relate it to something like, you know, rape revenge genre. There's yeah, there's definitely that aspect there because our lead, after she is turned into a vampire, goes essentially on a killing spree to take down these European vampires. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So I mean, how do we see the balance of kind of? liberation or revenge or whoever we want to call it versus exploitation in this comic because we have exploitation of female bodies in terms of the way the violence against women is often staged but we also have a plot that is a woman taking revenge against her own exploitation right so Mm -hmm. how do we see that working how do you how do you see the balance working 
again, the series works a little better in future iterations. Uh, we get the very last page, I believe, of this series is the implication that we're going to have another pair of female vampire hunters, which bears out. But it is an awful lot of uh, trying to have its women and eat them too, so to speak. Nicely done. Nicely yeah. done. <laughs> I think just just for me, the question when I read this kind of material is um, sort of one of sincerity of the empowerment of the female protagonist. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, mm-hmm. Is she just there to allow these kind of rape fantasies to play out and give a rationalization for it? Or is she a character that we identify with, that we um, see as a human being <laughs> uh, and that we you know, uh, hope for? Or is she just there to support the story of the much cooler character um, Skinner Sweets. Well, and I don't know. I, th- I, yeah, I think I think you might have to go a little bit into what the audience for this book was, and I don't have the answer to that. Um, yeah, there is like Snyder does give Pearl moments. Uh, she yeah. had, we get the story of her tattoo. We get that she is a, an aspiring person who still wants to keep on to her past. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't. We get that she is very she is conflicted about her new nature. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't stop her from getting very murderous very quickly when she has the first opportunity. I think cards on table. I'm not thrilled with the way Snyder does the kind of characterizations in general. Uh, as I said earlier, I think one of the reasons why American Vampire is important in terms of comics is the amount of influence he now has on DC comics. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the most influential voice on Batman for a number of years. He is in charge of the Justice League at the moment. I I think the balance between let's give the characters just enough for the audience to hang on and let's have the characters do gnarly scenes of violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pearl... We, see, we get these scenes of her regretting violence, but we don't get these scenes of, like, well, and now I'm not going to be violent. Yeah. Uh, maybe at the end, depending on how you interpret it, but also this series keeps going. Right. Well, I mean, is pacing sort of an element here, too, in terms of, you know, how we're reading this violence? I mean, I certainly found reading American Vampire that one of the things I found difficult about the violence in it was had to do with the pacing right i mean it's thing after thing after thing like Mm -hmm. blood splash page after blood splash page after blood splash page we don't have a nice three pages of pearl going back to her house and like having reflective thoughts it's just sort of thing after thing after thing yeah i I found it a bit relentless that way i think it starts pretty well yeah and very traditional horror in that that we get the immediate starting scene of the uh, pit of corpses but it's a very slow build to how we get there. That the rest of the issue is largely not violent until the end, which is, well, not counting the second half, which is nice, but I don't think the rest of the book does a very good job of keeping that pace. Do you think it connects at all to like the, um, the metaphor is almost a symbol of like American bombast or something? Yeah, I mean, I think the closest match in terms of horror style is almost the grindhouse uh, torture porn kind we don't see individuals being tortured and I'm I'm grateful for that I mean not in the kind of way that you get in a torture porn film anyway but I would say the level of violence is some of that 
splatter house type. So I just related to that. I wonder, it would be nice if we could circle back to the comic book form and its relation to violence, right? Because, I mean, you're relating it to grindhouse films and stuff, but I mean, the way violence is depicted in a comic book is very different than live action violence, right? And I mean, I wonder if we could talk about the ethics of violence in the comic book form. If it was something that was of such concern to Frederick Wortham and the people who supported comic book censorship, you know, again, is this a, a possibility of the medium? Is this a danger of the medium? How do we see the violence? I mean, is there sort of a danger in the violence in comic books being more exploitative, more fantastical, more appealing almost than live action because of its ability to sort of manipulate the world in drawn images? Or do we, or do we see it as being more reflective because it's not real bodies, it's not real violence, it's not really being enacted? I mean, what do you guys think? This is a huge question, but these are two texts that, particularly perhaps in the case of American Vampire, that allow us to think about some of these issues. Well, allow me to answer the question about comics and violence by jumping away from comics, okay. <laughs> as is my, yeah. Um, it, I am, as I've said many times, uh, from Game Studies, which has a very, which has the weird position of oh, we trump everyone when it comes to violence. Yeah. And in terms of the sheer number of corpses, then I think we have a good claim. Uh, but also uh, the fact that the player is the one enacting it uh, changes it in that regard. And in comparison, I think what comics, I think what comics offers is a lingering that uh, the panel is always there, the moment yeah. is always there. And that's different than either games or live action. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Um, no, I was just going to say that I think if we look at contemporary visual media, with the introduction of CGI and wire work, we're pretty much caught up uh, in the level of violence in comics. But, but Michael's point about the ability to linger on it, which comes back to some of the more fundamental mechanics uh, of how comics work. I'm thinking like even just McCloud here, uh, a very famous comics theorist. Um, Let's sort of unpack that a bit for people who might not know. So Scott McCloud, who wrote the book Understanding Comics, one of the key theories in that book is this concept of closure, um, having to do with the gaps between comic book panels. So the idea that one of the ways that comics can be very participatory is that you're required to fill that gap between the panels. And one of the examples he uses in that book to illustrate it is the scene of an axe murder, where someone is raising the axe, you don't see it fall, you just see the scream, um, but you're required to fill in what happens there, so you participate in that act of violence. Yeah, he, he which, describes the viewer yeah. as an accomplice. Exactly, exactly. Which, which has is, a lot of again, implications the, for horror uh, Game studies where better than everyone comes in that, oh, you want to talk about <laughs> participating? Where are the part now? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is actually a really cool point of distinction between American Vampire and Tomb of Dracula. I actually like the depiction of violence in American Vampire better, uh, again, from a perspective of sincerity. Violence is hideous. It's ugly and gory. Mm. The idea of making violence part of a broader sort of romantic mythology, I find problematic. Actually, that's maybe worth touching on that, as you said, Dracula is this kind of attractive figure. Neither of the sets of vampires we get are attractive. The Europeans are ugly, fat, yeah. and old. The Americans are horribly distorted monsters. Yeah, so I, again, we're working with the aesthetic here. So, I, I mean, if, if we read American Vampire and we think gross, that might be the best way to depict violence, as opposed to Tomb of Dracula, where we see violence and we think, you know, cool. 
and, yeah. and his cape is lovely while he's murdering that person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, though. I mean, getting back to that thing of sort of lingering... I mean, that's one of the things I find the hardest to deal with with comic book violence, right? Because I think you're right that, you know, uh, the terribleness of it and the unrelenting terribleness of it in sort of American vampire, or the unrelenting grotesqueness, perhaps. It's a lot of blood splatter. But at the same time, all those little blood drops are like drawn individually and mm -hmm. that encourages you to spend time with that image. Yeah. And I mean, is there anything encouraging you when you're spending time with that image to see it as grotesque versus beautiful? It's, I, I don't know if this is something we're going to be able to answer, but it's an interesting question. I mean, in Tomb of Dracula, I would say that violence is adventurous. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's... And wrong. if I could uh, maybe even take back a little what I just said about <laughs> uh, violence is ugly. I mean, the other thing about American Vampire is that it's very much presented as violence is cool. Mm -hmm. That we're supposed to think, oh, how badass is it that... Uh, Skinner is carrying someone's torso, yeah. its head, with the spine still attached. Yeah. And again, visually, artists love to just do these like beautiful gore all over the place kind of thing. And comics are very suited to particularly fantastical mm. sort of exhibitions right. of gore in that sense, right? I mean, even it's a bombastic form in a lot of ways, and that's a word that's mm -hmm. come up a few times. mentioned at the beginning of the pod we also have an academic book re review for this podcast as we always do and this time it's going to be michael reviewing gothica by victoria nelson take it away right so nelson's book uh gothica uh, and the full subtitle vampire heroes human gods and the new supernatural it's a little different than some of the works we tend to look at for this segment as it's not really about exclusively comic books or vampires, though both receive their own spotlight. Instead, Nelson casts a very wide net to pursue a very specific thesis, and I thought it would be interesting to take her argument and see how it can be usefully applied to our texts, or how it usefully fails to be applied to our texts. In a nutshell, uh, she argues that in the West, religion used to be imbued with a spirituality and a belief in the supernatural. However, as we shifted to more secular and Protestant perspectives, we kept our fascination with the supernatural dark side of Catholic faith, as represented by demons, witches, and other monsters. This fascination laid the foundations for the 19th century rise of the Gothic genre, and today we see a larger shift in how we view these monsters as positive, sympathetic figures. Essentially, the religious spirituality and the belief that used to infuse Western society is resurfacing in modern fandom. And the secondary belief we have in the integrity of fantasy worlds is spilling into our real-world primary beliefs. At the same time, our relation to gothic monsters such as zombies and vampires has changed, from colonial object to post-colonial other to the rehabilitated subject. And the gothic becomes not an evil, but the means for individual human-based transcendence. Nelson explores the implication of this thesis over the course of 12 chapters, 10 of which drive draw on a superlatively deep roster of examples. Topics include Dan Brown-esque thrillers and the positing of God as ordinary man, Cthulhu and the worship of fandom, half-demon tragic figures like Preacher, Hellboy, Son of Satan, and Constantine, death and the gothic romance as it now appears in the guise of Anita Blake novels, the transcendence of Bella in Twilight, 
and further figures such as Zombies, The Christian Hell House, Horror Around the World, and the films of Guillermo del Toro. Nelson's usual model is to juxtapose these modern examples with works traditionally considered part of the Gothic tradition. For the most part, it works fairly well. The extreme breadth means that some claims never get their full attention, but for the most part, that breadth is its strength. Even scholarship that attempts to do, or that attempts to do away with the distinctions between high and low culture has a tendency to cordon off certain areas of media from others, a fate comic scholars well know. But by putting these texts in juxtaposition with each other, the book is made stronger for it. At the moment, though, there are two chapters that are particularly relevant to our discussion. Uh, while discussion of comics is peppered throughout the book, it's only chapter four, Decommissioning Satan in Favor of His Man-God Whelps, that uses comic series as the main focus. Uh, she argues that Satan is a, tragically tra is a classically a tragic character in Western literature, but there's a shift to represent the devil as more of an interstate or comical creature. Comic books take both approaches, but with a heavy melodrama aspect, and she explores the charismatic, charming, half-human, half-devil figure represented by such characters as Constantine, Damon Hellstrom, Sandman's Lucifer, Spawn, and Hellboy. The chapter closes on Ennis and Dylan's preacher as a prime example, and she presents the character as someone who takes a human approach to divinity, and in doing so transcends both angels and devils. And quite notably, in the works we're looking at, Tomb of Dracula and American Vampire, we have characters who claim to be gods or beyond gods. However, in the chapter on vampire, specifically, uh, the bright god beckons the new vampire romance, Nelson focuses on an aspect of the vampire that's maybe not as prominent in these comics. It starts in the same familiar place with Stoker's Dracula, but emphasizes the genre's transformation via Anne Rice, where, quote, the fatal bite takes the place of sex, creating an atmosphere that is perversely erotic by virtue of its displacement. This strand of vampire story, Nelson argues, continues through Octavia Butler's Fledgling, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Anita Blake, True Blood, and most significantly, Steph Stephanie Meyer's Twilight. By the end of that series, the main character, Bella, has gone from an ordinary girl, rescued from her ordinary life by love, to a power in her own right, achieving godhood. There's a hint of that in the stories we've looked at, but I think in general, romantic love isn't something that comes up as much. So I guess that leaves the question, where do these stories fit on the trajectory Nelson has mapped out? Well, I, I like that. I mean, I don't feel that I can speak to it that well since I haven't read this particular book, but you know, bringing up how many characters there are in American comics who are these kind of, you know, Satan spawn kind of heroes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I wonder if that fits with, you know, American comics being so dominated by superheroes, right? I mean, it's not a huge jump between Superman and Hellboy, really. And I mean, Noel Carroll even brings up, I think, in Paradoxes of Horror, that Superman is a monster. Hmm. And I mean, when he's first introduced in, you know, action comics, he is treated like a monster by a lot of the onlookers and stuff. You know, what is it? You know, not who is it, right? <laughs> and I mean, that goes away pretty quickly. He's sort of like accepted by the public. But I mean, I, yeah, that connection interests yeah, me. Yeah, there's a, a trend there that we talked a little on how the Hulk touches on those themes. Uh, the early thing in Fantastic Four is portrayed yeah. in a mm -hmm. kind of monster. I think the current run of the Hulk by Al Ewing is looking into Hulk as a horror monster. What, mm -hmm. the Immortal Hulk series? Yeah. yeah, where he's like a zombie, sort of, basically. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think in Tomb of Dracula, it's, um, 
maybe comes down to the depiction of the character and his transition that we're seeing in the early era of, of Wolfman. I don't like him when he's the, again, Silver Age villain. He's just, oh, you fools, and oh no, my plan's oiled, and I fell down, and it's embarrassing. Uh, but when he becomes like... beaten by a flashlight. Yeah, when he becomes sexy, smooth Dracula, I'm all on board again, and what you're saying is just like psychoanalyzing me in that context. <laughs> Uh, so now I feel shallow. Well, I mean, I wonder, you know, <laughs> as comic book readers, and specifically American comic book readers who have read a lot of superhero comics, I wonder if we're more willing to accept those types of characters as heroes. I mean, you know, because, I mean, superheroes have certainly been criticized as being fascist, as being ultraviolet, as being all of these things that we've kind of talked about as being perhaps negative aspects of both of these, of both Tomb of Dracula and American Vampire, right? And I should probably mention that uh, while Nelson is a bit dismissive of superheroes. The conclusion of her book does lean very heavily on uh, Grant Morrison's Supergod mm. as, you know, presenting figures or presenting these larger than life figures as our new mythology. Mm. That's interesting. That's interesting. I wonder if superheroes are sort of the missing link between, you know, how certain Victorian horror characters have been translated into the American realm. Not the I mean, missing we, link, well, but sort of a piece of it. We've certainly yeah, been discussing right. how the superhero basically took over from horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in terms of because we are comics academics who often teach courses on comics, or at least courses that include comics, um, what do you think about the teachability of either of these texts? Do they have value in a university classroom? Are they something that either of you have taught, would consider teaching? I mean, what do you think? Let's start with you, Andrew. I've never taught to Dracula, but I would definitely consider it. Um, I think, for one, there's the sheer quality of the writing and the visual artistry, especially as we get further into the series. Um, that stands out, but even kind of just in terms of the, the importance of this text to the evolution of comics, this is a, a turning point where we're sort of figuring out how to tell stories outside of um, what Marvel had established as their method within the 1960s. Uh, it's an expansion of the universe, the same way we talk about something like the Guardians of the Galaxy film uh, enhancing the Marvel Cinematic Universe and taking it in new directions. I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, so I think this text has historical value, but I think it also holds up pretty well in spite of some 1970s cheese uh it's and maybe it could be reading. useful in courses about sort of the gothic courses about horror mm. a course where you might yeah. have it in yeah. conversation uh, with other dracula yeah. texts other vampire texts yeah i think it's offering um, new things there as well in terms of um, monster stories or vampire stories very specifically again mm. evolving and i think it's episodic nature lends it really well to being expandable you could take a single issue you could take an arc very easily and just use that to teach. Mm-hmm. I agree. And how do we feel about American Vampire? I, well, one of the advantages, I think, is that because it's so uh, overt about its metaphor, that I think it might make a good text for an undergraduate audience. If you wanted to, and again, on that level, it might make a nice, uh, let's get into Let's talk about the form of the vampire in different ways. I think it lends itself nicely to that. And because of its approach, let's use American history, or let's use a vampire as a metaphor for exploring American history. It pairs really nicely with any number of texts because whenever you're going to situate your vampire movie, you're making vampire into history. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that pretty much wraps things up in terms of our conversation for today. But in honor of Halloween, which is partly why we chose this particular topic for this particular podcast, I want to give you guys an opportunity to do some other horror wrecks because I know you have a couple of things on, on in mind to recommend to listeners that they might want to pick up in honor of the season. So we'll start with you, Michael. Uh, I'd like to make two recommendations. Uh, Emily Carroll's Through the Woods which is a wonderful uh, short story comic collection. Uh, a lot of the work that she's previously published on her site, as well as a few new ones, she's really excellent in using the unexplained to create a sense of horror. And my second recommendation is Gail Simone and John Davis Hunt's Clean Room, which is kind of a mashup of, of all things Scientology and Lovecraft. Interesting. And how about you, Andrew? Any any horror recommendations? I will go very old school again, and I will actually say that um, the old DC Comics reprints that have been coming out so extensively, you can find in most of your comic book stores. Um, Vault of Horror, Tales from the Crypt. Um, these are really good horror stories that I found were especially good at being just evocative and, and getting in your head. Uh, and the other recommendation I would um, throw out is something that I really want to do on our podcast at some point, which is the Demon Bear Saga um, from New Mutants in the 1980s. Uh, the story is interesting and okay, uh, but the um, visual artistry of Bill Sienkiewicz um, in that really particular story is um, some of the finest uh, ever created in comics. Uh, and really deeply metaphorical and does amazing things um, with getting into your your head and making you afraid of a weird giant bear that's just hanging out outside of a hospital uh, in upstate New York. Well, I'm not much of a horror person, but I'm always wanting people to go back and watch old monster movies. So in honor of Shape of Water, go back and watch all the <laughs> yeah. old Creature from the Black Lagoon yeah. movies. I think you'll enjoy some of the interconnections there. Um, thank you from all of us at Three Panel Contrast. We'll see you next time.